First up tonight, some alarm bells from Canada's top doc today saying that when it comes to seasonal respiratory illnesses, we are already seeing the difference this fall and winter season compared to the last two years when all those uh, restrictions were in place, all those protections were in place. Teresa Tam says COVID-19, influenza and RSV have created a dynamic that is putting a lot of pressure on our hospitals. So not only have the COVID-19 not done with us, even though we're fatigued, uh, we're seeing the influenza really rising quite steeply right now. It's going to be different in different parts of the country, but in general, that's just beginning to climb. And then RSV that began a, a little while ago is still at a very high level. Dr. Teresa Tam there, she says the resumption of school, work, indoor gatherings, all of it has resulted in more viral circulation, not surprisingly. Now, she's also emphasized the importance of personal protective measures. That includes indoor masking, COVID-19 and flu vaccinations and so forth. It comes on the heels of Ontario Premier Doug Ford yesterday encouraging Ontario residents to wear a mask whenever they are in a situation that is less safe. He stopped short, of course, of committing to any sort of renewal of mask mandates in that province. Uh, So to mask or not to mask, and will mask mandates return? It is a question that public health officials across the country are facing once again, politicians too. And joining me now with more on that is Dr. Gerald Evans, an infectious disease specialist with the Kingston Health Sciences Centre and Queen's University. Thanks for your time tonight, doctor. Oh, thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me. We're seeing, uh, I mean, it feels like it's it's been a bit of a, a, a slow storm rolling in, but we're really seeing the impacts of, of a lot of different things colliding all at once here. What's been going on? Well, yeah, that's exactly really what we've seen. So um, it's kind of an interesting mix this fall. I think it's kind of hitting what a lot of us uh, were a little bit worried about. So um, COVID has kind of held itself during the seventh wave. And, and in some places like where I am here in Ontario, the numbers are slowly starting to drop. However, at the same time, in the last really month and a half, we've seen the rise of uh, two viruses in particular, RSV or respiratory syncytial virus, uh, another virus called human metanumovirus, and then uh, recently parainfluenza virus. And right now on our doorstep and likely to jump in the next couple of weeks, of course, is influenza, which is going to arrive early this year and give us that seasonal influenza wave um, uh, really in the end of the month of November into December, which is probably about a month or two early. So uh, if you, I hate to use some of these terms, but it's kind of like the perfect storm at the moment uh, in terms of the persistence of COVID and the rise of these other viruses. I guess we had a bit of a preview of this from what happened um, in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia specifically over their winter, because I gather a lot of what we're seeing now was seen there. Absolutely. And I think a lot of us who were asked to comment uh, about what we should expect for this influenza season, looked at what happened in the Southern Hemisphere and in particular Australia and said, well, look, it's going to hit early this year. Uh, you know, we've had two years in a row now with extraordinarily low levels of influenza because we were, you know, employing measures that helped to reduce the transmission of COVID and they were very effective at reducing the transmission of influenza. But we expected and are now seeing that early rise. And the only thing I can say is that if you if you can look at the whole picture of winter in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, there was an early huge rise in cases of influenza seasonally and then it dropped off and it stayed dropped off so they didn't see a second wave and that was really due i think to uh, a lot of push for people to get their flu shot uh, and that probably helped to prevent what is oftentimes a second later in the winter early spring wave of influenza that can hit when you get an early season 
Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some ways to, to protect oneself as well. But we're seeing the strain right now in an already strained healthcare system, but specifically with children's hospitals. Yeah, for sure. And that's really related to, um, in particular, two other viruses, respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, uh, and parainfluenza viruses. Both tend to um, cause a more predominant problem with children, uh, and in particular, very young children where they cause uh, either a pneumonia. With RSV, it's called bronchiolitis. It's a kind of a weird name, but it's really a form of pneumonia. And in, in parainfluenza viruses, it's croup which a lot of um, people listening who are parents will have recognized uh, their children get oftentimes between the age of one and two. So those have had a particular impact on children, and that's caused this rise in, in um, respiratory virus infections amongst that group, not the least of which, too, of course, is we've gone right back to schooling. School started in September across Canada, and after the rhinovirus phase, which always happens in the fall when kids go back to school, that's the one that causes the common cold. It's pretty, pretty non-eventful. Now we've seen the rise of these more serious viruses. And, and again, uh, impacting a healthcare system that really has no room to give. Exactly. And uh, not the least of which is, of course, we've, we've also tend to kind of compartmentalize some of our healthcare and, and all large cities now and, and even smaller cities have, you know, children's hospitals where kids are expected to go for their medical care, including emergency visits and then uh, adult hospitals. So that's really putting a strain because uh, although uh, most general hospitals uh, like where I work here in Kingston uh, are used to seeing children in the emergency department, we're not used to seeing them in such large numbers at the same time that we continue to see large numbers of adults coming in with COVID, uh, what will be influenza, and of course, people who have had a lot of delay and other kinds of care uh, because of the pandemic. If we go back to the early days of the pandemic and, and some of these health protections that were put in place, I mean, the point was always to protect the healthcare system, as well as to save lives, of course, but to protect the healthcare system at large. Uh, what can people do now to try to help out? There are actually kind of a, a few sort of common sense things that we can do. Uh, one of them is to practice what we call, you know, sort of normal respiratory hygiene. Uh, washing your hands is important. A number of these viruses have what we call fomite transmission. That is, they can be transmitted onto hands. And then when you touch your face, your eyes or your nose, you can actually inoculate the virus into those areas. So washing your hands is really important. We need to be aware that if you're sick with something, you shouldn't go to school and you shouldn't, shouldn't go to work because there's a potential to transmit transmit that uh, to others. You need to be careful if you're gathering socially. Um, you know, if people are bringing uh, family and friends together or, you know, work colleagues or something, as we oftentimes see during the holiday season, they need to say and remind people, look, if you're not feeling well, you shouldn't come to this gathering because you might risk transmitting it to other people. And then there's other things we do. We talk about uh, sneezing into your elbow instead of onto your hands to avoid, uh, you know, producing that fomite transmission issue. Those are, I think, all reasonable things to do. And of course, during the pandemic, we learned that wearing a mask, which is not a particularly difficult thing to do, uh, can be very, very effective at reducing the transmission of a number of these viruses. Like I said, the, the absence of flu for the last two years can almost solely be attributed to you know, masking. In addition, of course, to reductions in travel, which are now gone, everybody's traveling, and so moving the viruses around. Dr. Evans, we were talking before we uh, we took a quick break about masking. Where does this go? I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me is that, you know, not, not to use this term too loosely, but people have become a little bit immune to public health messaging, unlike perhaps before the pandemic. Um, do you have any concern that that may get in the way here of people doing basic stuff to prevent both to help themselves and to help their communities? 
Most definitely. I mean, there has been a real erosion. I think there's a an emerging sort of distrust of expert agencies, whether it be public health, whether it be the government, whether it be, you know, physicians like myself and others who make recommendations. People are hearing about arguments that suggest that those things aren't useful, they don't work, and they're infringing on, on your freedom to do what you want. And and I think that has really been a challenge. Um, one of the most interesting groups I, uh, I sat on uh, during Mustard pandemic was the behavioral sciences working group of the Ontario COVID-19 science advisory table, which I also sat on. And uh, those behavioral scientists really uh, have a, a real take on how uh, the public perceives these kinds of messages. And that can really relate to a whole bunch of factors, which includes things like your own personal risk perception, uh, whether or not you have confidence in the group that are making those recommendations, et cetera. And all of those kind of come into play because I will say that much like it was in the Spanish flu 100 years ago, it is public kind of indifference to what's happened with the pandemic that has led to a lot of the, the challenges that we faced. And as you're carefully pointing out right now, when we would really like to say to people, and we are, like, consider putting a mask on again for a while. You know, influenza season typically lasts about four to six weeks and then it disappears. And this is a perfect time to think about, um, you know, doing your part to try and keep the reduction uh, in viral transmission low so we don't see as many cases coming into the into a healthcare system, which is really uh, in crisis at the moment, and as well as doing things that protect you, protect others around you, et cetera. So that's really been the challenge, I would say, because I don't think there's any one of my colleagues... Um, uh, I'm, I'm an infectious disease specialist. I, I take care of people who are infected. Uh, you know, we've been really wanting to get a message across that there are some things that you can do. Masking is one of them. I know for sure there's no appetite at the moment, seemingly for mandates, but uh, this is the kind of thing I think that can really uh, help. And it's not that difficult a thing to do in, in many ways. In what environments would you most would you recommend that? Because I think that sometimes can be uh, can be part of it. But right now, in terms of just protecting oneself, protecting one's community, trying to help the healthcare system, where where should we mask? Well, uh, you really have to think about circumstances where uh, crowding is occurring uh, indoors, where there is uh, less uh, circulation of air, short-range aerosols and uh, and droplets, and that can contribute to transmission. And those are particularly high-risk situations. The other one is actually in schools. And I know schools tends to be very controversial. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly younger children, actually, surprisingly, were able to wear masks and were not particularly against them. But there are many who uh, feel that masking a child in school is something how uh, would impede some of their education. But that kind of transmission is important. And I'd underscore it because we know influenza in particular, influenza virus, when it enters a community, it is amplified in school environments. So uh, encouraging uh, masking at school, I think, is a is a very reasonable thing to do, along with a lot of the other measures that I uh, that I mentioned previously. Will it come to a point, do you think, uh, seeing what you're seeing, where, where it will have to be mandated if people don't uh, if people don't do it voluntarily? It'll depend on, on what the uptake is. I mean, right now, what we know is a pretty well 50 percent of the public don't perceive masking to be particularly onerous. They may not be masking uh, up until recently because, uh, you know, they didn't think they had to. So it's a bit of a, a split in terms of, of where that that's going to happen. A mandate will help. Uh, there will be uh, circumstances that would really take a number, you know, the 50 percent of people who are generally against any kind of masking that they would take it up. 
Uh, and we know that during the pandemic, mandates worked. Uh, when you mandated people to wear a mask in certain settings, um, it did help to reduce uh, transmission of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, um, and, and definitely helped to reduce things. And, you know, the reduction uh, in a large meta-analysis that was published in the, in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, showed that masking was, you know, um, at least a 50% reduction in transmission occurred with that. So the challenge with mandates has been, I would say, is that, you know, governments are very adverse to this now. They're always worried about who's going to vote for them and and uh, what that next election is going to look like. And that's where you tend to see the pushback because they don't want to invoke the pushback that they get from certain sectors. Right. And I obviously shots uh, getting your getting your your uh, immunization up to date would be an important one now, I, I assume, as well. Oh, yeah, for flu, for sure. I mean, one of the early uh, bits of data that we have is the circulating strain of influenza, the H3N2 virus, which is dominating right now uh, in this early part of the influenza season, um, seems to be very well matched to the vaccine strain that we have. So, you know, in some years we've we've um, complained that the vaccine was less effective because it didn't match the, the circulating virus. Well, this year it does. And like I said, down in Australia, they attributed the drop in their seasonal flu and the, and the lack of a second wave of flu uh, to kind of come in because there was such a great uptake of flu shots um, in the population. Well, Dr. Evans, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. All right. Thank you for having me.